Oh my goodness, how time flies. Uh, I was a little boy in Kissimmee, Florida when this preacher from North Carolina came down for the first time and uh, heard him preach and it just uh, was a very life-changing moment for me. And uh, how old were you, Brother Ronald, about in your 20s then? Goodness gracious. And then I thought about my trip up here. I went to law school in 1986 and developed a group of friends, about nine or ten of us, and we got together at a friend's farm for dove hunting one year, and we've done it every year ever since. And this is our 35th anniversary. And I was looking at those guys, and I said, man, those are a bunch of old men. <laughs> a bunch of old men I'm hanging around here. And now I've got four children, one was born naturally to us, Isaac, and then I have three adopted children. One just turned 20, one's 17, and one's 16. The one that just turned 20 is my only girl, and she got married this year and started law school this year. So time does fly, doesn't it, Brother Ronald? Goodness gracious. But it's so glad, I'm so glad to be with you here uh, with my... Uh, my friends and my, my family, my family in Christ. And I hope you'll pray for me as I try to stand before you and deliver a message that I hope will be to your benefit, uh, but mostly God-honoring. And uh, I pray that the Lord would give me the spirit to be able to communicate it to you. Um, and I just pray he'll bless me in my effort. I'd like to speak to you this morning on the subject of forgiveness and reconciliation. You know, there's a lot of suffering in this world, and a lot of us suffer because we've been let down. Some of us suffer because we've been pushed down. Sometimes we've been kicked while we're down. Sometimes we've been shut down. But if we'll be honest with ourselves, a lot of us suffer because we low down. And we do not forgive. We need to learn how to forgive, and we need to learn how to reconcile. Now, forgiveness is a touchy subject. It's, it's very visceral. It's very sensitive. And as I try to preach this message to you, you're going to be tempted to start thinking back to your own experiences of forgiveness and unforgiveness. So I don't want you to zone out, because so I, 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 like, I, I got a lot of good points to share with you today, and I don't want you to zone out while we're talking about this, because it'll be easy to do. But um, I'm going to start off with a story. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a good story. And it's about Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo da Vinci was commissioned to paint a, a portrait, a mural of the Last Supper. And of course, that you know it as the... Uh, what happened in the upper room, uh, feet washing in the upper room discourse, and it's the scene of the Last Supper. And of course, there's the 12 apostles there, and there is, of course, Jesus Christ. So for the 11 apostles, he chose to use the faces of his friends. So he painted, those are easy, he just painted you know, 11 of them, he uses the face of his friends. A lot of people can be walking by this mural. Who knows how many thousands and 
he just thought he'd use his friend's face. And then for Judas, he thought about it. He says, I'll use my worst enemy, and I'll paint his face up there. And thousands of people walk by this painting, and they'll look at Judas and say, hmm, that looks familiar. <laughs> Isn't that Bob up there? It's my worst enemy. So he did. He painted the face of his worst enemy for the face of Judas. But after that, he tried to start painting Jesus, and he could not visualize or figure out how to paint the face of Jesus Christ. And he just kept looking back at the face of Judas and kept looking, and he just couldn't do it. So he thought, you know, that's really unfair of me to do that. So he, he changed the face of Judas to some nondescript person, maybe something he saw on the street or something he made up. And then at that point in time, he was able to visualize what Jesus looked like in his mind. Now, I'm not, tell, I'm not telling you that Leonardo painted an accurate painting of Jesus Christ this morning. He did not. Probably uh, the most accurate description we have in the Bible is in the Song of Solomon. But the point is this. The point I'm trying to make is this. Is that maybe you can't see Jesus Christ because the face of your enemy is more prominent in your mind than the face of the one that saved you. Now, in John chapter 12, there were some Greeks that came up to the disciples and they said, Sir, we would see Jesus. And if you go over to McClenny, there's a plaque up on the podium that only somebody standing at the podium can see. And it says, Sir, I would see Jesus. And Brother David, I think, put that up there because I believe that's the job of the gospel preacher. He is to give you a more clear view, a clearer view of Jesus Christ because we have to have that clear view of Jesus Christ in order to worship him in spirit and in truth. And, for, and it's really true that we make up who we think God is in our own minds. We make up our own image of God. And that's the reason we study the Bible. That's the reason we meditate on scripture. That's the reason we pray so that we get a true, honest-to-goodness picture of the one who was on the cross and saved us from our sins. So maybe when we are struggling with forgiveness, maybe our unforgiveness is clouding our vision of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. So we need to get that clearer view. So you might want to look at your neighbor this morning and say, neighbor, if there's a wall between me and you, there might be a ceiling between me and God. Jeanette Lockerbie once said this. He said, we must forgive the penitent for their sakes, but we must forgive the impenitent for our sakes. And that's what the scriptures tell us. Scriptures tell us that we need to forgive. We don't just need to forgive those that are unrepentant. Or, or, or repentant, we need to forgive those that are unrepentant. Not for the good sometimes it does them, but for the good it does us because we need to be concerned about our spiritual mental health. If we don't forgive them, we put ourselves in a prison. We have anger, we have issues with bitterness, and we have issues with frustration. And they are, you know, going about their business and, uh, you know, we're tore up from the floor up and they're sleeping fine at night. And what are we doing? 
we need to forgive because it's good for us as well. There's another definition of forgiveness. Surrendering, and I like this one, surrendering my right to hurt you because you hurt me. Let's read some scripture this morning. Mark chapter 11, verse 25 says, And when you stand praying, forgive. For if you have ought against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you of your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. So what does that scripture say? Plainly, it's telling you that if you do not forgive, you can't be forgiven. Now, don't get confused. Don't get it twisted. Don't, get up, don't pick up your purse and walk out right now. He is not talking about relationship there. He is talking about fellowship. I told you my oldest son, Isaac, was born to us. Um, he is, there, there's nothing that can sever the relationship I have with my son. He was born to me. He will always be my son. Nothing can change that. But we can disrupt our fellowship. What he says or what I do or the way we act uh, can either improve our fellowship or disrupt it. So Jesus Christ there is not talking about relationship. He is talking about fellowship. See, you will always be the son or daughter of the God in heaven by virtue of election and nothing can change that. And because of that relationship, one day you will be resurrected in the likeness of Jesus Christ because of the laws of inheritance and relationship. But... Your fellowship can be broken. Your intimacy with God in this life can be interrupted if you don't forgive. And just like Leonardo, your vision of Jesus Christ can become blurred. See, Jesus Christ forgave you of everything you ever did. And now you can't forgive that other person? You won't forgive that other person? That just don't match up. Unforgiveness. Listen to this. Why is it that when someone does something to us, when someone does something against us, we look at their actions? But if we do something against somebody else, we look at our intentions. Now, I didn't mean to hurt them. I didn't intend to offend them. Yeah, but you did. So whether you intended to or not, you still hurt someone. So it doesn't matter about actions and intentions. It's funny the way we look at it, right? So we talk, let's talk about forgiveness. Let's talk about reconciliation now. You ever heard the statement, I can forgive, but I can't forget? You ever heard that statement? How about I will forgive, but I will not reconcile? You might have heard that before because it might have come out of your mouth, Right? But Brother Chris, what about this? What about that? Well, relax, we might get to that. But part of forgiveness, my friends, is reconciliation. We cannot really forgive unless we also attempt to reconcile. But I can't reconcile. It won't work. I don't want to. Here's the key, though. The key is this. 
And keep this in mind. Forgiveness is a point in time, but reconciliation is a process. Forgiveness happens at a point in time, but reconciliation often involves time. It takes some work. See, it only takes one to forgive, but it takes two to reconcile. Let's use some real examples to illustrate this today. Let's first talk about Joseph. Let's talk about Joseph and his brothers. I don't have to tell you about Joseph. You know about Joseph. He started off in the pit, and then he went to Potiphar's, and then he went to prison, and then he went to the palace, right? But in Genesis chapter uh, 42, in Genesis chapter, let me read you a couple of verses there. Genesis chapter 42 and verse 1, it says, Now when, ja when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said unto his sons, Why do ye look one, on, uh, one upon another? In other words, why are you standing around looking at each other? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is corn in Egypt. Get you down thither and buy for us from thence that we may live and not die. Now let's turn, turn up down to uh, verse 5. And the sons of Israel came to buy corn among those that came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. And Joseph was the governor over the land, and he it was that sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brethren came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. And Joseph saw his brethren, and he knew them, but made himself strange unto them, and spake roughly unto them, and said unto them, Whence come ye? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. And speak roughly to them, he did. Now, if you look at chapters 42, 43, and 44, Joseph did not treat his brothers very well. And a lot of people think that that was Joseph's time to get revenge. He didn't like his brothers, and he was getting back at them. That was, that was not the case at all. But Brother Chris, he spake roughly to them. In fact, he put them all in prison for three days, and then he let them go, only because he was going to tie up one of the brothers as hostages. He says, don't come back without Benjamin. And then they did have to come back because in, in chapter 43 because the corn ran out, and they came back, and they had to bring Benjamin and it was Judah that stepped up, right? Judah said, I'll act as a surety for Benjamin. Because the, the father, Israel, he just was beside himself. He, did, he already lost one son. He's not wanting to lose his other one. But Judah says, I'll act as surety. If something happens to him, the blame be on me forever. See, what was he doing? He was acting as a surety. And who was Jesus Christ but the lion from the tribe of Judah? See, what did, what did Israel have to do? He had to give up his son that he loved. See, the father has to give up the son in order to save the family. The, son, the father has to give up the son in order to save the family of the elect, the family that he loves. And Judah says, I'll take the blame. And Jesus Christ took the blame for all of us, all of our blame forever. Because he is the lion of the tribe of Judah.
Now, was Joseph taking revenge on his brothers in chapters 42, 43, 44? No. Look at at 45. He, He openly, now he had forgiven them before, but he openly proclaims that he forgives them in chapter 45. In chapter 45, verse 5, it says, he tells his brethren, because he reveals himself to them at that time, he says, don't be grieved or angry with yourselves. After all they did to him, what a wonderful, sweet heart Joseph had. Joseph is concerned more for them than himself. He says, don't be grieved or angry with yourselves. How sweet is that? So what was Joseph doing when he spake roughly to them, accused them of being spies, hid the silver cup, put them in jail? What was he doing? He was testing them. In fact, if you'll notice that when um, he has them all at the house, he gives them uh, dinner and he gives them mess and he gives Benjamin five times the amount. He is showing favoritism to one of the brothers. How did Joseph get in trouble? How did Joseph get in trouble in the first place with his brothers? Because daddy was showing him preference. He made him a coat of many colors. And they hated him because he was the favorite son. And because of that hate that led them to have murder in their hearts. That led them to put him in the pit. And it started the chain reaction from the pit to Potiphar's to prison. And only then, after that, did he go to the palace. And so part of the testing of them is he shows favoritism to Benjamin and sees if he can conjure up these murderous feelings from them again. But guess what? They passed the test. They showed, it showed uh, Joseph from what he did to them in those four chapters, it showed Joseph that they had really changed. See, Joseph had already forgiven his brothers. It only takes one to forgive. And we have to forgive, brethren, because God tells us to forgive. It's instruction for Scripture. But the side benefit to us is the, the, the benefit it does to our spiritual mental health. But once again, it only takes one to forgive, but it takes two to reconcile. See, Joseph... Could, did not reconcile with his brothers in chapter 42. He did not reconcile with them in 43 or 44, but he did reconcile with them in, verse, in chapters 45. And you'll remember in, in, in 50, daddy's died, right? And they're, they're afraid now that daddy's dead, Joseph is going to really take his revenge on him. They still hadn't got it, that he had forgiven them. And it grieved Joseph to tears. And, but he says basically the same thing he says in chapter 50 and chapter 45. But he had to see if they, he, he could not have intimacy with them. He could not have that fellowship with them unless they had changed. And sometimes that's our situation in life. Some people are just toxic and mean but you love them unfortunately you got the job of loving them but you you may forgive them and you may love them 
but you may not be able to fellowship with them because they refuse to reconcile. But on the other hand, sometimes you ain't forgiven and you ain't reconciling when they have repented and they have made restitution and you still won't forgive them. But if they have made restitution and they have repented, it is your duty to forgive and reconcile. Now, they may still have some major character flaws. You may not be able to hang around them 24-7. You might be able to have a coffee with them at Starbucks maybe once a month. Maybe that's all you can stand. I stands all I can stands here. But we have to forgive and we have to make the effort to reconcile. Because that's what God did for us. He didn't just say, well, I forgive them. God also reconciled with us. He said, that guy don't look too reconciled to God. He looks like he's pretty much a rebel. Well, you just have to wait. Remember? Reconciliation is a process. He may be a rebel, but I guarantee you on the morning of the resurrection, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every elect chosen child of God will be reconciled to God. He's going to make us. But how about this life? It takes two to tango. One to forgive, takes two to reconcile. And we need to be reconciled to God. Amen? So Joseph was testing his brothers. He had to see change before he could commit himself to fellowship with them. And this is our example, isn't it? I mean, how about if you're living with someone that's abusing you or beating you every day? And you leave. Are you going to go right back to that person? You'd be stuck on stupid if you did that. You you would have to see some evidence that they had changed before you went back into that household. Is that right? I mean, that's just common sense, correct? We have to forgive in order to reconcile. There has to be some change. And sometimes that change is on both fronts. Isn't that correct? Even that person that's miserable, toxic, and mean. Mm-mm. I know a few people like that, do you? I think I do. Now, reconciliation is a process. And Joseph went through the process. If you remember Joseph, when he first met his brethren in chapter 42, he's dressed like an Egyptian. He acts like he doesn't speak their language. He speaks through an interpreter. That's another sermon, isn't it, Brother Chris? Brother, Brother Ronald? I mean, sometimes you can be dressed like a Christian and talk like a Christian. Sometimes you ain't a Christian, right? Sometimes you can be a Christian inside, and sometimes you're always wearing Egyptian clothes and speaking the Egyptian language. That's another sermon, though. We'll get to that sometime or other. But in chapter 42, he's disguised himself, and he is wearing Egyptian clothing. He's speaking the Egyptian language. They don't know him, so they're freely talking among themselves in Hebrew. And Joseph understands what they're saying. And what were they saying? They're saying, 
This is happening to us because of what we did to Joseph, our brother. He's, also, he's already seeing signs that they have begun the process of repentance. He's, I, he says, I need to see where this goes. To see if they continue so I can. And does he want fellowship with them? You know he does. When he finally reveals himself, he is hugging and kissing on them. He loves them. And after all they did to him. This is the ministry of reconciliation that we have. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And all things are of God who hath reconciled to us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. I know that's pointed towards preachers, but we need to be ministers of reconciliation in our everyday lives. I can forgive, but I can't forget. No, we are to be ministers of reconciliation. To wit that Christ, or God was in Christ, reconciling the word unto, world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. How can you say forgiveness is important and reconciliation is not? After reading that text. He didn't reconcile with them, 42, 43, 44, but through prayer and with patience and with time, that, re that relationship between those brothers was healed. See, sometimes God has to heal the person that has been hurt, put down, beat down, and let down. See, have you ever considered that the person that has offended you may be grieving and hurting? See, that's the mature Christian outlook, isn't it? Joseph was such a mature Christian, if I can say that. He was concerned about the hurt his brothers were undergoing because of the things they did against him. And we have to consider that in forgiveness. Now, the time we have left, let's talk a little bit about Paul and Mark. Paul and John Mark. Let me read a couple of verses of Scripture to you before we discuss the, those two. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and verses 24. Therefore, if thou bring thou gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, Leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. Matthew chapter 18 verse 15. Moreover, if thy brother tres shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. There's another sermon in that. Here's the last few, ver few words. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. That word gain means reconcile. Thou hast reconciled between for thy brother. Now let's talk about Mark and the Apostle Paul. If we read the, uh, the book of Acts, if we look at it, survey it, primarily the first 12 chapters, the real important figure we see there is Peter. 
But then as we get to the end of Acts, we see the prominent person spoken of there is really Paul. In Acts chapter 12, the leader of that time there is Herod. Hey, this is Herod Agrippa I. And uh, he is there to please the people. And the people there are the Jewish authority. And so he takes uh, James, not the brother of Christ, but the brother of John. And he imprisons him and he slays and kills him. And this pleases the people. Well, the politician wants to please the people. So, hey, that got me popular. Let's grab another one. Let's go grab Peter. And he put Peter in prison, puts him in the inner prison, puts him in between the guards there in chains, and he is guarded personally 24 hours a day, six-hour shifts, because of the popularity of Peter. There, in the middle of the night, an angel comes, and Peter sees it and believes it's a vision. Now, Peter's had visions before. He had one in Acts chapter 10. He says, wow, this must be another vision. But this angel lets him out of the prison, and Peter finds himself on the street, a free man. And the church has been praying for Peter ever since he's been taken prisoner, because the next day they know that he's going to be killed if God does not intervene. So they're, they're praying. And they're having a prayer meeting in the house of a woman named Mary. Now, it seems that every woman in the Mideast was named Mary, right? So you've got to differentiate the Marys here. And so uh, the way they differentiate this Mary is that she is the mother of John Mark, who we know as Mark. Now, we know the story. Peter goes and knocks on the gate. The damsel Rhoda comes and says, whoa. She goes back and tells, hey, the prayers have been answered. Peter's, no, that's just his angel. His angel? They think he's dead already? <laughs> but they're still praying for his release. What kind of prayer meeting was that? But anyway, so they see Peter. He's there. He sees him. He sees John Mark's mother. Now, he knows where that house is. He's been in that house before. So he certainly knows John Mark's mother. And, that, and by implication, he probably knows John Mark as well. But John Mark is mentioned. That's the first time we see him in Scripture. But it's very nondescript. We don't know anything about his character. We don't know what he does for a living. We don't know anything about him other than his mother was Mary. So, <clears throat> then we go to uh, Acts chapter 13. And we find an individual by the name of Paul and his preaching friend, Barnabas. Now, these are co probably co-pastors of the church of Antioch. And there is a famine. There is there's problems happening and they have a gift in hand and they go to Jerusalem to deliver the gift. Paul and Barnabas do. And when they go down there and deliver the gift, they, they stay, they give the gift, and then they depart to go back to Antioch. And guess who they take with them? They take an individual by the name of John Mark with them. Now, we know at this point, in reading ahead a little bit, that John Mark is not an elder. He's not a pastor. He's not an evangelist because they list the ministers from Antioch. He goes up there and stays a few years. And then they list the ministers from Antioch and Mark's not in the list. But Mark has a specific job in the kingdom of God. He has a specific job in the work of the ministry. He is a helper. 
And we cannot calculate the profit and the good things that Mark did for the church during those years that he served. You may think, I can't help the church much. I'm not a pastor. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not an elder. Neither was Mark. But Mark helped the church grow and to spread. And he was a minister to the, to the pastors that did preach the word. So Mark goes back with Barnabas and Paul up to Antioch. And he stays there a few years. And he must have been a great helper. He must have been a great help to Paul and Barnabas and to the church there. He must have been such a good worker. Because when we get to Acts 13, Paul's going to go on his first missionary journey, him and Barnabas. And who are they going to take with them? Their minister, John Mark. Because this guy is really going to help us out. He is going to work 24-7 in this evangelistic effort that we're on to plant churches. They take him. But the missionary journey is not... <clears throat> As easy and wonderful as maybe John Mark thought it was going to be. He thought this is going to be a wonderful, exciting thing. The first thing they do is run into a sorcerer. Then they run into another sorcerer. And he, this is not a nice one. Because he's called the son of the devil. Son of Satan. They're not staying, they're not staying at the double tree or the Hilton. They're sleeping outside. They're sleeping in other people's homes. John Mark, I don't know what happened to John Mark, but I am supposing that John Mark said, this is not what I signed up for. And they got on a boat to Perga to go preach some more. And guess what John Mark does? He deserts them. And where does he go? He doesn't go back to Antioch. Where does he go? He goes, he takes a boat right back to Jerusalem. Who lives in Jerusalem? Mama. John Mark's going home to mama, right? And that's the last we read about John Mark in the scriptures for many years. Now, how does Paul take what Mark did to them when he deserted them right in the middle of that preaching journey? Paul did not take that very well. Remember, that's happened in Acts chapter 13. Then we get over to Acts chapter 15. And what's going to happen there? We're going to go on another preaching trip. Paul and uh, Barnabas, right? Now, <clears throat> what does it say in Acts chapter 15, verses 37 through 39? And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. One was his Jewish name, one's his Greek name. But Paul thought not good to take him with them who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder, asunder, <laughs> doesn't sound good, from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed unto Cyprus and Paul chose Silas and departed. Now, how long is it between these? I think it's about five years. So Paul has been hanging on this anger about Mark 
for about five years. And when the opportunity is for Mark to show them that he's really changed, Paul didn't want to see it. He says, he betrayed me once, he deserted me once, I've written him off. I'm not taking him with me. Bar Barnabas, who's his relative, and, and, and Barnabas is such a sweet giving, he's the one that got Paul in good graces, the church at Jerusalem. And he, is, he has a forgiving heart. And he says, no, he's changed. Mark is going to go with, nope. So I am determined not to go, not to take him. I am determined that we do take him. It was, contention was sharp. So sharp that they blew up the relationship and they depart asunder. Paul says, I ain't taking him. And he, and he goes. And that's the last we see of Mark for about 10 years. So what happened between Paul and Mark? See, <clears throat> Mark was willing to reconcile. Paul was not, was he? He didn't. But he did at some point. We see that uh, Mark went home to mama, probably. And he did a lot of praying. And he got back to the work. And he, he repented and he made restitution. And he showed he was a changed man. Paul didn't buy it. I don't know for how long their, 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 their uh, split happened took place for. I don't know how long it took him to, to really reconcile, but the first account we find is over in Colossians chapter 4. In Colossians chapter 4, this is during Paul's first imprisonment. In that imprisonment, he writes the books of the Ephesians, uh, Colossians, and uh, Philemon. And what, what do we read in Colossians chapter 4? in chapter 4, we find that he is a prisoner in Rome, and who is with him, ministering to him? He says, Mark is with me. Mark's with me. In Philemon, he describes Mark as his what? His fellow laborer. Something's happened. See, Forgiveness is a point in time, but reconciliation is a process. It took time, but the relationship was healed. And he loved Mark so much. We get over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And this book was written during Paul's second imprisonment. Paul is just about to lose his head. He is just about to lay down his life for the gospel. The end is near. In 2 Timothy, he says, what? Timothy, when you come to see me, everybody else has abandoned me, but when you come, you bring Mark with you because he is useful, he's profitable for me in the ministry. That wouldn't have happened unless there was forgiveness 
and reconciliation between Mark and the Apostle Paul. Goodness gracious. And what else does Mark do? Mark pins down the first gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you read the gospel of Mark, he, he, you can see the theme. The theme there is that Jesus Christ is the faithful servant. Jesus Christ is the faithful minister. Mark says, I left you guys. I left Paul. I left the work. I turned my back on you. I was unfaithful. But now, because of reconciliation, I've learned how to fellowship. And I've become faithful. I learned how to thank God in the right now for the not yet. I will use, he will be used by the Holy Ghost to write this gospel. Under the influence of the, of the Holy Ghost, he will pin it down. And he says, I'm going to write about a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. I'm going to write about a person that will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. I might have left you, Paul, but I'm going to write about someone who will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. I'm going to talk to you about someone that can take all your mess and turn it into a message. I'm going to talk about someone that will take your misery and turn it into ministry. I'm going to talk about a God that became man so that man could someday live with God. In the resurrected form of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ showed us all what forgiveness and reconciliation is all about. You know, brother, I'll end with this. Brother Ronald will talk about this rain that's been having. What'd you have, seven inches in the last two days? I tell you what, it was not easy traveling this morning. I was on the road for an hour and a half. But I was thinking about it. <clears throat> that rain was hitting the windshield. But every time I had a problem seeing, I'd turn on the wipers, windshield wipers. And I thought, what if rain was sin? That sin comes raining down, but God just wipes it away. And we tell ourselves, Lord, I'll never sin against you again. And then we, we turn right back around and we're sinners and we sin again. But guess what God does? He wipes it all away again. We rain, it rains and he wipes it away. It rains and he wipes it away. Jesus Christ does that for us. And as he wipes the sin away, we're able to get a clear view of where we're going and what we're about. Let's all forgive and let's all reconcile. Thank you, Brother Ron.